It's from the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. It is in page 1205 in your Bible that's in the pew. Romans 12, verses 1 through 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern that is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And this is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Today is part two of, of a six-week series of messages that we're titling Strengthening Our Core. And we're looking at, at six core values that we want more and more to characterize um, who we are as a church and, and hopefully who we are as, as followers of Christ in general. Last week we looked at gospel transformation. And gospel transformation uh, is, is really how the, how the gospel of God's love for us in Christ is ultimately the source of power for us to grow and to change. Um, Paul says in, in Romans chapter 8 that our deepest challenge, our deepest problem, if you will, is not our behavior. It's our hearts, because it's our hearts that are behind our reflexes, our inclinations, the things that we that we ultimately run to, and so um, it's our our behavior that flows from our heart. And so, rather than just trying to to deal with the outward behavior, the the surface level issues, the challenge is to to really really get to the heart. And and so that's what we looked at last week. Um, I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but what do our hearts primarily do? Now, the scientific people in the room would say, come on, silly, they pump blood, right? They spread blood throughout your body, and, and, that's, and that's true. But in our context, the heart is, is the center of our affections. So, you know, we know this because if, you, if you've ever done anything on Facebook or some other social media site, if you like something, you click the picture that looks like this, right? But if you love something or if you want to communicate that you love someone, which, which little picture do you click on? You click on the heart because the heart loves. That's what our hearts do. Our hearts love. And so... What we love has a significant impact on, on what we do because we, we pursue that which we love. Well, 
Last week, Paul, Paul laid out for us how God loves us. He laid out all the, the wonderful things that God has done for us in his great love for us, how Christ died on the cross for us to atone for our sin, how Jesus lived a perfect life in our place so that, that we are clothed in his righteousness. Talked about how he's given us his spirit that, that is present with us and, and that is at work in us. And how the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we belong to God as his children. And so the question now is, what's next? Now, now what? what? Where do we go from, from that? Well, having spent the, the preceding chapters of this letter to the church in, in Rome, unpacking all of these wonderful gospel truths about God's love and, and all he has done, the very first thing that Paul says now in chapter 12 of Romans is, I urge you, I beseech you. In fact, I got, I'm sorry, I, I've been, I'm more, sometimes I'm more familiar with like the New American Standard or the NIV than I am of the ESV. So he says to us, I appeal to you. Therefore, in light of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, in response to this great mercy that is ours in Christ, I appeal to you to offer your bodies, to offer your lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Now, I think this, this way that Paul is expressing himself, this, this particular phrase, living sacrifices, is intentionally odd. I think there's, there's some, some tension here, some, some intended paradox, because the word sacrifice literally means to kill. He's saying, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm urging you to offer your lives as a living killing, as a living death. What does that mean? Well, here's one thing that it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that, that we are, that Paul is encouraging us to sacrifice for our own sins. To, you know, to, to offer our lives to God so that, so that through our performance, through our behavior, God will accept us. God will love us. God will, will forgive our sins. Hebrews 9 and 10 make it very clear that in his death, Jesus and then through his sacrifice on, on, on the cross, he has already atoned for our sin. So that can't mean what, what, that can't be what Paul is encouraging us to do. Because this atoning for our sins and, and this, this righteous standing that we have before God, we already have in Christ. We already have those things because of what he has done. A living sacrifice, a living death, is to no longer live for ourselves. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, there, there may be a slide for this, I'm not sure, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, Paul says that we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised again. And then the same Paul, again in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God 
who loved me and gave himself for me. So to offer our lives as a living sacrifice is to no longer live for ourselves, but instead to live for the Lord. When I was about 20 years old, I was, I was a, a, a summer youth intern right here at EP. I'm looking at some of our summer youth interns right over here. So, so I was, I was you. I was sitting right, at, I wasn't sitting in that pew, but you know. And, and as part of one of our experiences that, that our group of interns had to, had to go through is we had a number of articles and, and a couple of books that we had to read. And one of the articles that we read, I can't, I'm sorry that I can't give you the title of the article. I can't even tell you who wrote it. Um, in fact, this past week I, I, I made contact with Will LaRose, who was our youth pastor at that time. And I said, Will, you got to help me figure out what this article was. And he said, I can't help you. I don't even remember. So I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that I can't even tell you what, what this article was. You just have to, have to trust me. But in this article, it was, it was written by a pastor, and he tells the story of a young man who came to him and wanted to talk to him because he had decided in his life that he wanted to live for the Lord. He wanted to, to dedicate his life to serving the Lord and ministering um, for him. And so... He made this appointment, sat down with the pastor, and he came into the pastor's office and he sat down and he said, so here's the deal, I want to I live for the Lord. And I've written out a plan. I have a plan for how I'm going to serve the Lord in my life because I want to live my life as a, as a living sacrifice. So he, he, he said this, he said, so first of all, I, I want to I go to, to go a Bible college and I, wanted to get, I want to get a degree from a Bible college. And then I want to marry a godly wife. And then I want to go with my godly wife to the mission field. And there on the mission field, I want to start an orphanage to to minister to children who have no family, no home. And then I want to start a school that will teach these children and other children about the Lord, as well as, you know, how to read, write, do math, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then after I do that for, for, you know, an extended period of time, you know, most of my career, then I want to come back to the United States and then I want to teach in a Bible college so that I can equip other young men and women to go and, and, you know, be, be prepared to do similar things that I've done. And so he lays out this plan and, and the pastor listens very intently. And at the end, the pastor says, that sounds wonderful. That, that's, that's, to me, that sounds like a great plan. So they have, you know, they talk about a couple other details. And finally, the, the young man says, all right, well, then, then it's settled. I got my plan. Um, you know, we're, we're agreed that this is going to be the way that I will live for the Lord. And this is the way that, that I will give my life as a, a living sacrifice to please God. So here's what I've done. And he reaches into his bag and he pulls out this piece of paper, you know, that's got this really nice typewritten stuff. And he says, so what I've done is I've typed this all out, this whole plan. I've typed it out, and, uh, and, and so to ratify this plan that this is going to be my life, um, I'm going to sign the bottom, and, and you know, since God isn't really here to sign, um, pastor, I'd like you to sign the bottom, as if, as if the pastor represents God or something. So he says, I, I, I'm going to sign the bottom, I want you to sign the bottom, and this will represent that this is God's plan for my life. Well, the pastor kind of pushes back from the desk a little bit. And he says, well, you know, I, I, I can't sign this. I mean, this is, this is a great plan. I mean, it seems to be a great plan, but, 
But this, this is your plan. This isn't necessarily God's plan. I mean, God's plan may look, you know, there may be a lot in common between God's plan and what you've written down here. But, but this is, this is God's plan. I mean, this is your plan more, more than it's God's plan. He says, I'll tell you what. Tell you what, here's, here's what I would be willing to do. And he reaches in a drawer in his desk and he pulls out a blank sheet of paper. And he says, I'll tell you what, I'll sign the bottom of this. And I would encourage you to sign the bottom of this. But let's let God write the plan for your life. Now, can you relate to this young man? I know I can. I can relate to him because uh, I want to be in charge. I mean, the fact that you're here means that there's a very good chance that you desire, for the most part, to live not for yourself, but to live for God. I mean, you're here in church. So, th- so there's, there's at least something in you that is saying, you know, I'm, I'm open to the idea of hearing about the life that God would have me live. But... But let's be honest, we want to know the plan, don't we? I mean, when was the last time you signed a document without reading it first? Right? I mean, at least you're not supposed to. So, so we want to know the plan. What we really want is we want to be a part of the designing of the plan. I don't want to just know the plan, I want to write the plan. I want to be the architect of the plan so that I get to, to write out and, and, and help shape what it looks like. And then after I, I design it as the architect, then I want to be the manager of the plan. Because I want to make sure it unfolds at the right pace and the right schedule and all those kinds of things. And then after I want to be the manager of the plan, the truth of the matter is I want to be the technician of the plan. I want to manage even the details. I want to execute the plan. I know that none of you can relate to that at all. I'm going to mix my metaphors here, but but the point that I'm trying to drive home for us is that to offer our lives as living sacrifices is not simply to view our our lives like a car and and to say, all right, I got to I got to drive my my car in a different direction. Now it may mean that our lives need to go in a different direction, but that's not that's not simply what this means. It's really about our life getting a new driver. It's actually about us getting it, being willing to get out of the driver's seat and get over into the passenger seat and letting God be the one who gets, gets to determine where, where our life goes. It's saying, Lord, I'm not only willing to surrender decisions like how fast do you want me to go, but I'm also willing to surrender to you for the destination of my life, where we're going, where I'm going. Or for the route that you want me to take. How direct will the route be? How smooth will the pavement be? How rough will the pavement be? Who will ride in the car with me? Who won't ride in the car with me? Will anyone ride in the car with me? And I'm even willing to have you not tell me where we're going or how we're going to get there ahead of time. I'm going to go out on a limb here, but this is not the form of our life. In other words, this is not how we typically think. This is not how I typically think about my life. 
And my guess is that it's often not the way you think about your life. And yet, Paul is saying that this, this way of understanding our lives is the essence of the Christian life. For most of us, if we're ever going to have that kind of mindset, it's, it's going to mean, it's going to require that we be transformed in the way that we think and understand our lives. Now, having said this, if any of you are even remotely interested in anything else I have to say today, because this is not really an easy way to think, Paul does give us more to, to, to chew on. He, he gives us more perspective. In fact, he unpacks some, in, some implications of this way of thinking. In fact, I've, I've identified four of them for you. They're not in your bulletin, um, but, but I think they may, they may be able to be seen on the screen here. So four implications that I'd like to walk through with us uh, briefly. The first is that this implies that my life needs to change. The second implication is that this life, this broad life, is not about me. The third implication is that my particular life is not even about me. And then the fourth implication is that my ministry and my gifts are not for me. So I know, I know I've just kind of given you a lot there. We'll go ahead and let the slides stay up there. Um, let, me, let me walk through each one of these for us to try to give you a sense of, of, of what I think Paul is saying here. The first is that my life needs to change. In verse 2, Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now listen, this is not a sermon about culture, okay? This is not... This is not a message about cultural influences, but I do want to say this. The world is offering me and you tons of input about what our lives ought to look like. It it just is. About what the shape of our lives ought 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 to be. What we should value, what we need, what success is what's acceptable, what should be normal, even about things that are good and right and virtuous. The world is is flooding with all kinds of proselytizing, selling, marketing, promoting what we ought to be like. And Paul says, don't be conformed to that pattern. Don't be shaped by that mold. Don't be molded by that form. Instead, be transformed by a renewing of your mind. In other words, by a renewal of how you think, by a renewal of what you value, of what you understand that you need, a renewal of what you, the way you define success or what is acceptable or what is normal or good or right. Notice two words in here, the word conformed and the word transformed. These words are not opposites, okay? They're not like one versus the other in, in the sense of, of one is good, one is bad. But they are different. The word conform means to be formed after something, to be shaped after something. To to be formed or conformed is is really describing a process where, where something is being shaped or made for the first time. The word transformed 
is to take something that already has a form. It already has a shape. It already looks like something. And it needs to be changed. So, so to conform is, is as, if to, as if to be shaped initially. And then transformed is to have that initial change, that initial shape changed. So I think what Paul is doing here is he's acknowledging that we all already have a shape. You know, you didn't walk in here this morning saying, I wonder what I look like. I wonder what my life is like. You already have a shape. You already have a form. You and I have been in the world long enough to know that the world has shaped us. So that's not really in question. What Paul literally is saying, and I would suggest is actually a a more helpful translation, is he's saying, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. You're already being conformed to it. But he's saying, let's discontinue that shaping and instead let's be changed. See, this is, this is what's so hard about our lives. All of us have been shaped by the world. The question isn't, have we been shaped? The question is just, how hard is the concrete, right? For some of us, the concrete has cured around our lives to the point that, ooh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know there's going to be a lot of change going on here. Or... You don't like the implications because to change my life may not be done with a trowel, you know? That's what you use to, to, to shape wet concrete. What kind of things are used to shape hardened concrete? Yeah, that, that's what might be needed. Did you say jackhammer? Yeah, that's kind of what I thought you were thinking because that's what I'm thinking. So... So here's, here's the hard question. The question is, are you willing to have the shape or the form of your life changed to be more in line with God's design for you? And I, I, I can only answer that for me. I can't answer that for you. But are you willing to have the shape or the form of your life changed in order to be brought into in line with God's design for the life that he would have for you? I had a, a great conversation this week with uh, Pastor Jim Ferguson. He's typically not in this worship service because he's teaching a class now and then he comes in at 11. But um, for those of you who don't know Jim Ferguson, he's been on the staff of our church either on a full-time or a part-time basis, I would say, for it's got to be 40 years. Um, and he, he's a wonderfully godly man. And, and for you know those of us who are younger you know you tend to think that people that are older and religious and and ministers um you know maybe maybe they're maybe the way they think is just something you can't relate to but um i continually find pastor ferguson to be somebody who understands life um anyway so i'm having this conversation with him and he and he makes the observation and i think this is so true he says you know our kids have a picture in their mind of what they want their life to look like. But you know what this is also true? Those of us who are parents and you have kids, parents have an idea and a picture in their mind of what they hope and desire that their kids' lives would turn out to be. Isn't that generally true? And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I mean, if you aim for nothing, you're going to hit it, 
right? So, so if you're going to have kids, it's okay to have an idea in your mind about what you hope your kids might turn out to look like. Not, not physically, but what, how you want the, their lives to go. And it's not wrong for us as individuals to have an idea in our mind about how we would like our lives to turn out. But what do you think are the chances? What do you think are the percentages of, of the, of the parents who have an idea in their mind of what they want their kids' lives to turn out to be like, and then the kids who have an idea of what they want their lives to turn out to be like, what are the chances that those two pictures are the same? Not very good. They're often, usually, typically, quite different. Here's what, here's what was so profound in terms of what, what Jim said. He said, you know what's funny? We're almost always both wrong. Because almost always, or almost always never, <laughs> it's, it never turns out the way that the parents envision it, and it never turns out the way the kids envision it. Whose plan, whose picture always comes into fruition? It's God's picture. It's God's plan. I have a plan for how I want my kids' lives to turn out. They have a plan for how they want their lives to turn out. But neither of our plans is what's going to actually happen. God is going to have his way. What a unifying thing it could be for parents and kids if we could come together and agree that I will hold my vision of my kid's life with an open palm and not clench tight, you know, hold tightly to it. I'll just kind of hold it out here and say, I do have some ideas, I do have some desires, but I'm going to hold them with an open hand. And then the kids can also say, you know, I have desires too. I have some, some ideas of what I'd like my life to look like, but I'll hold that with an open hand. And we will come together, parents and kids, in pursuit of the design and picture that God has. Wouldn't that be amazing if parents and kids could do that? Because then we'd be unified. Because we'd have the same desire. We'd have the same mission, same ambition. But here's what it would require. It would require that parents, you would have to acknowledge and embrace that your kids' personalities and interests and gifts that are all different from yours are essential ingredients that God is using to shape your children to be the people that he's, that he's got, got planned for them. They're not accidental, but those are ingredients that God is using to bring about his design for your child. And then kids, you're going to have to acknowledge and embrace that God has not made a mistake in giving you the parents that he gave you. And that their personalities, the way they approach life, the things they value, even though they are different from what you value, they too are not accidental. But instead, they are ingredients that God is using to bring about His design for your life. That God is using both the parents and the kids, the desires, the values, the gifts, the personality, all of that, bringing those things together in the pursuit of his plan and his design, even though you have not seen it yet. 
Wouldn't that be an amazing thing that could unite us as parents and children if we could, if we could mutually get committed to pursuing those things even, even though we don't know what they look like yet? All right, well, that's, that's an awful lot to say. My life needs change. It needs to be transformed. And the, and the hard question is, am, are you and I willing to have the shape or the form of our lives brought more in line with God's design? The second implication is that this life, generally, this life is not about me. In verse 3, Paul says, For the grace given to me, for by the grace given to me, I say to you, everyone among you, to everyone among you, not to think of themselves more highly than they ought to think, but with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. He's not saying have a low view of yourself. This is not about having low self-esteem. He's not saying that. But he's saying don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Sandy and I had a, a friend growing up, and we thought this was quite funny. She would say, just in the middle of a conversation, she would just sporadically say, you know, enough about me. What do you think about me? <clears throat> and, and that was kind of her way of joking that, you know what, this life is not about me. And yet, you wouldn't know it to, to meet us, would you? Because for most of us, if you meet us, you will get the sense that this is my world and you're just living in it. That life is about me. But here's the problem with that. To have that approach is basically to pretend or to act or behave like I'm God. I'm, I'm a part of a, a, a involved in, in helping to lead one of our church's ministries um, called Divorce Care. And th- this past Thursday night at Divorce Care, we were we were watching a, a video series, and one of the things that that um, his name is Henry Cloud. One of the things he talked about is he said, you know, with God. There's a lot of omnis that come with God, right? Omnipotence, he's all-powerful. Omniscience, he's all-knowing. Omnipresence, he's, he's present everywhere all the time. And so, but here's the problem. We want to be in charge of everything. But to be in charge of everything, you have to be all-powerful. And you have to be all-knowing. And sometimes you even have to be present everywhere all at the same time. And we don't have those attributes. And yet we continue, if we're honest, to want to be in charge of everything. I want to be in charge of my life, and truth be known, I want to be in charge of your life too. And, and, and I know you return the favor. Because <laughs> we do. But we are not God. We need to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. This life is not about us. And let, let me give you this as, as a general little... I won't call it a warning. It's more of a a caution, okay? In my experience, I can't give you a proof text from the Bible for this, but in my experience, God tends to do one of two things when we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. When we want to be in charge of everything, God has a tendency to do one of two things. One thing he tends to do is he says, okay, you want to be in charge? Go ahead. Knock yourself out. Let me know how it goes. And what do we do? When he gives us all that rope, what do we tend to do? I was going to say we mess it up, but somebody in the front row just said, or somebody in the third row just said, we screw it up. So I'll keep it real. That's what we do. So that's one thing that God tends to do is he says, all right, I'll let you, I'll give you some, I'll give you some space. 
Hopefully he won't let us destroy our lives, but he does give us room to go ahead and learn through trial and error that we are not in charge. The other thing that he often does is he says, you're not paying attention to me. I'm trying to lead you and I've got a plan for you, but you're not following. You're not, you're not attentive. He gets our attention. And his getting our attention doesn't usually feel like a loose leash. It usually feels like a <clears throat> leash, right? We don't always like that. But in my experience, God tends to do those things when we are not following voluntarily, if you will. So this life is, is also not about me. The third, third implication, my particular life even is not about me. In verses 4 and 5, he says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function. And so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individual members of one another. Every single one of us, according to Paul, is part of something that is bigger than we understand. There are a couple of different ways that the Scripture talks about this. Sometimes the Scriptures say we are living stones, that God is assembling into a temple in which He will dwell by His Spirit. Other places the Scriptures say we're a family, where God's our Father and we're His children and we're all siblings. Uh, you might even stretch it to say we're a royal family and Jesus is our King and we are His younger siblings and He shares His inheritance with us. But here, Paul says, we are parts of a body. Bodies have hands and feet and eyes and ears. No part is indispensable. When one part of the body hurts, all the parts of the body hurt. The point is, we need each other. You need all of us, and all of us need you. Do you catch that? Individually, you need all of us, and all of us collectively need you individually. We're not whole. We're not complete without every, every piece. So my life is even not about me. And then the fourth implication is that my ministry and my gifts are not for me. In verse 6, he says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then he lists a whole bunch of different gifts. It's not an exhaustive list of gifts. I'm not even going to read the list because it's not about the particular gifts. The point is, we all have gifts. None of us have all the gifts, but all of us have some gifts. And he says, and because you have those gifts, use those gifts. If this is your gift, then do it this way. If you have this gift, then exercise that gift. But the purpose of these gifts is not to reflect well on us. It's not to get us recognition. It's not, it's not to produce some, some praise for us. And the purpose of those gifts is not even to serve us. It's not to serve me. My spiritual gifts are not intended to be for, for just my benefit, as, as if I meet my own needs with them. Here's what it means. It means the church of Jesus Christ in general... And EP Church in particular does not primarily exist to be a ministry to you. That's not what the church is here for. 
Now, I'm not saying that we don't minister to you, and I'm not saying that we don't minister to each other. There are benefits to be, to be had by being a part of the church. But the primary purpose of the Church of Jesus Christ in general, and EP Church in particular, is not to minister to you. Primarily, the, per- the purpose of the church, generally and particularly, is to be a ministry by us. You see the difference? One is a consumer mindset. The other one is a serving mindset. One says, how can the church help me today? How can the church minister to me today? Meet my needs today? And we do do that. We, and, 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 we, and we want to do it better. Because you all know that we don't do it well enough. But having said that, the primary purpose of our being here is not to be a ministry to us, but to be a ministry by us. There was a time in the life of EP, some of you may even remember this, where in the, on the back of the worship guide, right before it, it gave the names of the pastors and the staff members, it used to say, the ministers of EP Church are the men, women, and children who make up the congregation. The ministers of this church are the men, women, and children who make up our congregation. Do you see yourself as a minister? Paul says you should, because that's why we're here. By the way, that's what this Renew thing is all about. It is an opportunity to grow, and, and, and Doug is not wrong to say that Renew is going to help us see the third core value materialized in our midst, that we would grow together. That is, that is a huge benefit of this. But it's not just so that we can grow together and say, boy, don't I look grown. Don't I look mature? Don't I look, look spiritual? The purpose of it is not only for us to grow, but it's for us to be equipped so that we can then in turn minister to one another and to, and to this community. So if you're not already convinced of, of, of the importance of this Renew effort and, and, and if you're not already motivated to want to be a part of this because you're thinking, well, it's just another opportunity to grow. I've grown enough. Please, please also consider that, that it's an opportunity for you to be equipped because this is not just a ministry to you. We're called to be a ministry by you, by us. All right. Let me just, I have one, one more thought I want to give you before I close. I know I didn't include it on the outline, but at the end of verse 1, having urged us in response to God's mercy, the tremendous love for, that God has for us in Christ, he says, to offer your lives as living sacrifices. But he says, at the very end of it, he says, this is your spiritual worship. I would love to say a lot more here. There's a lot more I could say, but we just don't have time for it. But the bottom line is this. What we do here on Sunday mornings, here at the 915 service, for example, what we do for this 75-minute window, give or take, on Sunday morning, this singing, the praying, the confessing, the giving the offering, the hearing God's Word read, the celebration of the sacraments, what's this called? It's not a trick question. Worship, okay? It's worship. 
And it's very important. It's very important that we do this on a regular basis together. And I'll, I'll, I'll probably have, a, have a, an opportunity to say a little bit more about that next week. But according to Paul, worship is not just something that happens for 75 minutes on Sunday mornings. Neither is it just something that happens as, as some of us may, may read the scriptures on a daily basis. He is saying that Paul is, that, that God is looking for living sacrifices. So Paul not only calls this, what we're doing here, worship, he calls this living sacrifice life worship. In fact, what I would like to suggest, and I don't know, I don't know if there's, a, yeah, the slide does it. Okay, so if you go back a slide, that's what we do here on Sunday morning. Go to the next slide. That's offering our lives as living sacrifices. I'm not trying to say that what we do here on Sunday morning isn't important, but what I'm saying is that if you just think that what we do here on Sunday morning is worship, then your view of worship is too small. Because Paul says, offering our very lives as living sacrifices, letting God change us, letting God shape us, that this life in general is not about me, that even my life is not about me, that my gifts and and my ministry is even not about me, that I live for him. Paul says, now that is worship, capital letters. God is not just looking for people who will show up for 75 minutes on Sunday mornings, but he's looking for living sacrifices. And Paul says not only is this worship, but he says this is the essence of the Christian life. And so this is why we believe that living lives of worship ought to be one of our core values as a church and as God's people. Let me pray for us as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. Father, we thank you for the love that you've shown us in Christ. That this living sacrifice idea is not something that we do in order to win your approval or to gain your acceptance. We already have that in Christ. You've loved us. You've sent your own son. He's, he's died for our sins. He's clothed us in his righteous, perfect record. And you love us. We already have those things. It's in response to that that you call us to trust you to live for you, that we would no longer live for ourselves, but that we would live for you. Lord, we ask that you would help us to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.